So, John, you said you want to start things off by telling a story. Hey, Celeste. Uh, yeah, a little story from my childhood. Uh, you know, having grown up male in America and all. A white male, for that matter. Cisgender, hetero, middle class, right? All this is right? Yes, uh, the oppressor, in other words. You know, so so of course I want to get us rolling by talking about myself. Yeah, Lord knows we, we never get to hear stories about folks like you. That uh, ever-neglected demographic, the straight, white, non-disabled American male. Well, we are calling the series Men, and we will be exploring men and manhood though with that critical seen-on-radio gaze. We'll mostly be looking at men other than you, and of course, at women's experience a whole lot, and non-binary people, and gay, and straight, and queer, and trans folk. But I want to make it clear from the top that as the producer and host of this show, I'm not trying to pretend that I can stand outside the frame, right? I'm not claiming to be some quote-unquote neutral detached observer. I don't think anyone would buy that anyway. I know uh, our audience wouldn't. <laughs> In our last <laughs> series, Seeing White About Race, it mattered that I'm a hopelessly white person. And this time out, you can't get around the fact that I identify as a dude. Or that you, Celeste Headley, my guest co-host and conversationalist for this season, you are a woman, and by the way, a woman of color. That's very true. And things are going to get intersectional around here. We will look at how these hierarchies and forms of oppression get all tangled up with each other. So let's hear that story. Okay, right, this story. So um, I guess I was about uh, 10 years old when I somehow got the idea to challenge my big brother Paul to a boxing match. We were a big family and pretty close. Five kids, three boys, two girls. Paul was the oldest, almost four years older than me. Then our two sisters, then me, then my younger brother, Todd. For some reason, our family owned two pairs of boxing gloves. Do you remember the boxing gloves? I do. I can picture them very well because we got them for Christmas. That's Paul. He lives in a suburb of Minneapolis. They were brown with maybe a white wrist area with laces. They laced up on the inside of the wrist, and they were not very big. They weren't like big, puffy ones. They were... They weren't really well padded. They were probably about as light, you know, as close to, to a fist as, as you would get to with a, with and still have a boxing glove on, is my, my recollection. Now, as I said, we did have two sisters. It, it's funny even to say it 40 years later, but there was never any doubt that these would have been for the boys, right? I would say no. No, there was no doubt. But we weren't into boxing. I mean... I guess we watched things, and Gino would have certainly been watching heavyweight boxing and stuff at that time. Gino, that's what we call our dad, whose name is Gene. It's not like we were into boxing by any means, so I'm not quite sure why we received that as a present. I, I talked to Mom about this, and she just shakes her head, and she says she's, she can't imagine why they bought us boxing gloves, and she said maybe, maybe they were on sale because <laughs> they didn't have <laughs> much money, and they were trying to get yeah. a Christmas present, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My brothers and I were very sporty and competitive. Basketball, baseball, football. But we weren't fighters. The three of us can each come up with exactly one story in which we kind of fought with another boy, a kid from school or the neighborhood. In each case, the other kid started it, and it didn't amount to much. None of us have thrown a punch or taken one as an adult. I'm sure we had never used the boxing gloves in earnest before the day in question. 
but this was the early 1970s. I predict that when I meet Joe Frazier, this will be like a good amateur fighting a real professional. This will be no contest. The era of the epic Ali-Frazier championship fights. I was Team Ali, a big fan. One day I got to feeling full of myself and put on a pair of the gloves and my bathrobe over a pair of gym shorts and started bouncing around our basement rec room, as we called it, saying, come on, Paul, let's go. World Championship bout, right here and now. And I kind of suggested it wasn't a great idea, that you maybe wouldn't come out on it, you know, come out on the long end of it. Uh, that was unlikely, um, but that I was willing to participate if you sort of understood that. That's kind of what, the way I remember it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a nice way of saying it. I think, uh, yeah, I think you kind of said, that's probably not a good idea, John. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Paul was a foot taller than me and his arms twice as long. Maybe I thought I was just so quick, so naturally talented that I'd hold my own. More likely, I hoped he would humor me, let me bounce around, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, have some fun with it. Um, I mean, I think there was a little dancing and a little bumping gloves and, um, you know, and then I bopped you, basically, is what I remember. And I don't remember if I bopped you in the chest or the... I don't think I would have hit you in the face, honestly, but you might remember differently than that. You know, honestly, I don't remember the details. I I think you hit me a few times, and, and it wasn't like a vicious uppercut or a, you know, you could you could have just hauled off and decked me if you'd wanted to be really cruel, and it wasn't like that, but I think you... I don't know if you hit me in the face two or three times kind of just hard enough that it really hurt my nose, or if maybe you got me in the solar plexus and knocked my wind out, I don't know. All I know is that it, it, my memory is that it was about 30 seconds, and I was crying, and it was over. And okay. I was completely humiliated and uh, mad, and uh, it was <laughs> not, not happy. Defeated, soundly yeah. and soundly defeated. So I'm guessing you never asked Paul for a rematch. You learned your lesson, right? <laughs> well, I learned that lesson. Uh, but sadly, it's not the end of the story. No? It gets it gets worse from there? <laughs> Remember, I also have a younger brother. Uh-oh. Todd was, uh, still is, 16 months younger than me. He and I played together a lot when we were kids. We were the two youngest, and he was there in the rec room that day. I might have still been wiping the tears from my eyes when I said, Todd, come on, your turn. Put the gloves on. But you, you don't remember this, huh? Nope, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't remember specifics about it, how many rounds we went. <laughs> or did we, maybe we didn't make it past two minutes, I don't know, but... Um. That's Todd, he lives in the Twin Cities too. When he told me this recently, that he didn't remember our boxing match, that came as a relief. Because my memory is that I pretty much did to you what Paul had done to me. Okay. Which is to say that I popped you in the face a few times. Not really hard, I wasn't trying to hurt you, or but, but it didn't take very much. We weren't big fighters, and I think if you get hit in the nose, even with a, with a softish 
gloved hand it it hurts and, and and you know so I think it was over pretty fast and you were crying and that was it so did it make you feel better to take it out on your little brother you might think so uh, I had evened my record right a few minutes before I'd been a loser now I was a winner uh, but actually I felt just awful almost sick to my stomach as my little brother walked away angry and hurt. Worse than I'd felt getting beaten by Paul. It felt like I'd lost twice, or worse than that. I'm glad to hear that it, uh, at least in your conscious memory, that it didn't live on because for me, occasionally I've thought back on that moment and just I just wince inside like what a crappy thing that was that I'd did to you and taking out my frustrations on you. But I don't think I ever said, I'm sorry. So, um, I'm sorry, brother. Thanks, brother. So does this whole sad story have a moral? Well, I think it does. Um, something like that trying to establish your masculinity, your manhood, as our culture defines it, will tend to make you stupid and destructive. <laughs> well, I am not a man, but I assume that you might hurt other people and also yourself, the would-be manly man. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX, this is Seen on Radio. Welcome to Season 3. I'm John Bewin. And I'm Celeste Headley. This is Part 1 of our new series, Men, a season-long dive into patriarchy, sexism, misogyny... And other words with lots of syllables. Masculinity and male supremacy, past and present. How we ended up with male dominance, how we can get better at seeing it, and what it might take to change it, with emphasis on how it all goes down here in the U.S. of A. And yes, this is a follow-up to our series on race last season, Seeing White, and we're modeling it loosely on that project. Celeste, more than a few listeners responded to Seeing White uh, by saying, how about doing something roughly similar but on gender, on, you know, toxic masculinity? Were these listeners women? Every single one. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go any further, uh, let's tell the people who you are, for those who don't know you. Celeste Headley, longtime public radio host, including at NPR and WNYC, author of the book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. You're often on the road speaking, and your TED Talks have many millions of views. And if that weren't enough, you're a trained, sometimes performing classical soprano. You're the granddaughter of William Grant Still, often called the Dean of African-American Classical Composers. Gonna see if I can get you to sing for us at some point. Yeah, if you go first. That's not gonna happen. So, um, Celeste, I pulled together some clips and we made the inevitable kind of introductory montage that would typically come in about now, you know, dramatizing the many forms of damage and mayhem brought by members of my gender. Right. But I've been thinking, do we even need to tick off the stuff? I mean, everybody knows all this, right? Are you kidding me? I want to hear it. I mean, just to get us all on the same page so we understand what we're talking about here. Yeah, you think we need, yeah. Who doesn't love a good montage? Okay. Let's hear it. All right. 
Okay, here goes. Most of the headlines on the toxic masculinity beat lately have come from the Me Too movement. It blew open in October 2017 with the Harvey Weinstein allegations, but... I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there, and she was mad. The fuse may have been lit a year earlier. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Of course, women have been talking about sexual abuse and harassment for much, much longer. It's just that few in the mainstream were listening or amplifying those voices until now. The activist Tarana Burke first used the phrase Me Too a full decade before it became a hashtag. But since things blew up in 2017, dozens of men have fallen, most of them in high-profile industries where the victims were prominent white women. That O'Reilly paid former Fox News personality Lise Wheel $32 million to settle sexual misconduct claims. Popular comedian Louis C.K. at the center of the latest sexual misconduct allegations. Pressure is growing at this hour for Congressman John Conyers to step down. after Dozens of people accusing Las Vegas casino mogul Steve Wynn of sexual misconduct, according to... And we just have to include this moment, the disgraced TV news guy Bill O'Reilly of Fox News being grilled by the then-soon-to-be-disgraced TV news guy Matt Lauer of NBC. Since your firing, have you done some soul-searching? Have you, have you done some self-reflection? And have you looked at the way you treated women that you think now... It's really not clear yet how far Me Too will go, whether time really is up for harassers. But over the past year or two, it's become nearly impossible to deny the pervasiveness of sexual harassment and abuse. It's not only men who do it, but it's overwhelmingly men. How do women still go out with guys when you consider the fact that there is no greater threat to women than men? We're the number one threat to women. Globally and historically, we're the... the suspect number- in the attack, Alec Manassian, was quickly linked to an online community of trolls and violent misogynists that call themselves incels. A term that Incels says- are a group of men who think they have a right to sex and they're filled with rage toward women who don't give it to them. But, of course, men are also the number one physical threat to other men and to trans people and to children, to everybody. Where that gunman fired from above onto the crowd below, again killing at least 58 people at this point, 515... Violence, rape, and sexual harassment are usually abuses of power. And well, half a century into the modern women's movement, men still have most of it. New study out today finds that men are paid more than women in every single industry at every single level. How about that? For example, there are fewer women GOP senators total than male GOP senators (laughs) with the name John. There are fewer female Democratic governors than male Democratic governors named John. As for CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, fewer total women CEOs than men CEOs named James. And those are just a few examples. Come on now, we gotta change this. Since we're cataloging the troubles with male supremacy here, we should at least mention the everyday irritations that, uh, well, that you women in particular have to put up with. Like mansplaining, you mean? (laughs) Yes, let me tell you about it, actually. (laughs) Male overconfidence and also somehow at the same time, dudish insecurity entitlement, yep. man-spreading, right. etc., 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 those things. Uh, you know, all that stuff is its part of the bigger picture, and those things will come up along the way, I'm sure. Yeah. But like we did with Seeing White, we're going to concentrate more on the big stuff, 
power and its abuse, and how to make things better. We'll go way beneath the headlines to deeper questions. What is gender anyway? And why do we make so much of it? How did we get patriarchy? And how has it evolved over the centuries? What does the latest science say? Is masculinity as we know it necessary or inevitable? Before we go any further, though, John, I really want to say I hope we'll also look at the cost to men. Mm. Right? I mean, toxic masculinity damages everybody, including the masculine. Absolutely. We will get to that. I have one more thing I'm just a little bit nervous about that I'd like to put on the table. Yeah? So you and I are in this together, Celeste, and we're co-hosts. Right. But listeners might notice as we go along that um, if you're doing a word count or measuring our actual airtime, it's going to be somewhat more than 50-50 me. Right. And if you're going to hog the airtime, at least you're going to be transparent about it, well, right? Well, <laughs> I picture our astute listeners, especially women out there, kind of rolling their eyes as, as the guy like yammers on as I do more than my share of talking. It's called side-eye, John. Um, but it is not like it sounds. I'm here as your guest co-host, but this podcast is your actual job. And you are both the reporter and the co-host, and you have spent months doing research and interviews, so in lots of episodes, you'll sort of take it away and deliver those reported parts. Except for a few episodes that'll be reported by other people. Right, and then you and I will reconvene at the end to talk things through. You pitched in ideas uh, that have shaped my reporting, and our conversations will be crucial to what we're trying to do here, sort of like Chenjerai Kumanyika was here to check my work as a white dude. Looking at whiteness, you'll keep me honest as a man looking at man. Trust me, I will do that. I I have total faith. So, welcome to men, everybody. Let's get into it. And let's start by going back, a little before the Me Too movement caught fire. Well, thousands of years before. Have men always been in the driver's seat? Or did they seize the upper hand with respect to women after a more egalitarian time in early human history? Well, ma! Ah! Hey, hi, Fred. What's the idea being on television instead of being here making dinner? How many times have I told you a woman's place is in the home? Go ahead, explain. Okay, I'd say this is a representative spot in any town, USA. Durham, North Carolina. Strip mall. Best Buy over there. Walmart here. My name's John. I'm... I'm working on a podcast. If you think about sort of men being in charge, you ever thought about or what? How do you think we got that system in the first place? Going back, back, back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the obvious answer would be back to hunter-gatherers. The one men were out providing, being the provider, if you will. I would imagine because of strength, maybe. Physical strength. Yeah, physical strength. Well, I have to go right way before Christ. Why? Because uh, God created man first, so man was uh, in control first. So that was the way it was intended? That was the way it was intended. Uh Well, I think it goes back to the caveman days. I mean, um, you know, who who ruled the cave? The man. Really? As far as I know. There are some common assumptions we make about how men got the upper hand. Not surprisingly, the actual evidence tells a more complicated story. 
So John, you spoke with a few scholars who've worked in this area for decades. So tell us what you learned, and I'll see you on the other side. All right. Meet Meg Conkey. Sure. Yeah. She spent almost half a century doing archaeology, much of it in the French Pyrenees. Yes, looking at those ancient cave paintings, but also digging up stuff out in the open, not in caves. I didn't like this concept of the caveman. It sort of rubbed me the wrong way in terms of as if our past was all these men dragging women around by the hair. And I also realized archaeologically, a lot of the time they actually didn't live in caves. So the whole idea of a caveman, and the, then of course its extension, the sort of inner caveman that some men feel they need to express, um, sort of bothered me. And I said, okay, I've got to go back to some of the basics, and let's just see... Conkey's a professor emerita of anthropology at California Berkeley. Her publications include a book called Engendering Archaeology, She's a leader in applying a feminist critique to the study of prehistory, or what she prefers to call deep time. My research is about the people who lived during the Ice Age, that is, around 15, 20,000 years ago. Think about the words we use to talk about deep human history. The Stone Age. Bronze Age, the Iron Age. So Conkey says this way of carving up time started a few hundred years ago with the people who first did what would eventually be called archaeology. It was decided that there might have been several different quote-unquote ages of man. Of course, they were the ages of man, and they were all technologically based. So we have the Paleolithic, which is paleo meaning really old, and lithic referring to stone. Conkey notes that archaeology got going at a time of industrial and technological advances. So it's not too surprising that those early researchers thought in those terms when looking at the past. Besides, tools of stone and metal are tangible. You can dig them up and hold them in your hands. They actually can measure them and organize them into little categories. So I can see why it happens. But it also is clearly, as we know from any classification system, it tells you as much about the organizers as it does about the people that you're trying to organize. I asked, rhetorically, about those organizers. Who, who has it been through most of the history of your field? Oh, these are all men, of course. They're, <laughs> you know, these, uh, and many of them upper-class, uh, elite men. So archaeologists categorized people by the tools they used. But Conkey says they didn't try very hard to tease out the social structures of early human societies until just the last few decades. What traditional researchers did do was to make assumptions about men's and women's roles, projecting their 19th or 20th century societies back into prehistory. So they declared there was a strict division of labor. Men did the hunting, women the gathering. Men were the tool makers, women the child rearers. And of course, from the dawn of man, as people used to say, men were in charge. You know, anthropologists talk about public and private spaces that exist in a lot of societies. And That's Mel Connor. He's a professor of anthropology and neuroscience at Emory University and author of a book we'll hear more about. It's called Women After All, Sex, Evolution, and the End of Male Supremacy. About those public and private spaces, on one hand, the public, the workplace, governing councils and the like, places dominated by men in most recent cultures, including ours. And private space, the home, the domain of women. Mel Connor spent a couple of years studying the Bushman people of northern Botswana. 
He says in that culture's small tribal bands, there is no division between the public and the private. The men that I knew, the hunting and gathering men that I knew, would probably exclude women if they could. <laughs> so I'm not saying that they, uh, they have this wonderfully egalitarian uh, ideology. I'm just saying that the conditions of life make it ridiculous, if not impossible, to, to exclude half the adult population from decision-making when they're contributing half the food and, and they're also smart. <laughs> they, have, they have good things to say in those conversations around the fire. Connor and other scholars think that's how decisions got made in ancient hunting and gathering cultures, too, collectively. Often, yes, around the fire. Meg Conkey says old-school anthropologists were probably right that in deep history, men did more hunting than women, though more recent findings indicate women also helped with some forms of hunting. Still, in a lot of ancient cultures, women likely were the main providers of food day-to-day as plant gatherers. In many hunting and gathering cultures in more tropical environments, they mostly eat plants because, you know, it's hard work to go out and hunt a giraffe or something like that. The whole idea of uh, killing a mammoth uh, was probably something that happened once every couple of generations, and then they talked about it the whole rest of the time. So, <laughs> And did cave art about it, right? <laughs> to take one more example of rewriting anthropology's early narratives, tool-making, those wondrous stone and metal artifacts that gave the ages of man their names. The men of deep history carved and forged those tools, right? Well... We know from ethnographic and ethno-archaeological and ethno-historic accounts, women were the primary butchers, uh, Arctic society women, and even the women in North America during the same time period of the so-called Pleistocene, they were making and using and refining their own butchering tools. So the whole idea that only men make stone tools what is somebody, a woman going to do? Sit around and wait till somebody comes back from five days on the hunt before making a tool? <laughs> I'm sure it was shared knowledge that they all needed to have to get on in the world. The hunting and gathering peoples that were our ancestors and that were the only humans on the planet for uh, hundreds of thousands of years generally had, I wouldn't argue, a completely egalitarian uh, kind of society, but considerably more egalitarian than, than what we had for uh, the last, let's say, 10 or 12,000 years, which to an anthropologist is not that long. What happened 10 or 12,000 years ago? Those nomadic or semi-nomadic humans started settling down and farming. Some accumulated property. They formed villages, then bigger societies. Mel Connor. And then with an increase in population density, you have specialized warriors, a specialized priesthood, a specialized merchant class, noble class. I actually re- refer to them in the book as male conspiracies to exclude women from the public spaces. And the, the difference between public and private spaces arises for the first time and you have the uh, the option to relegate women to the private space of the home and that really happens for the first time in that type of society. 
So most scholars now think male supremacy is new, well, a mere ten millennia old, in a species that's been around roughly twenty times longer than that. That would suggest patriarchy is not a necessary, baked-in feature of human society. Oh, and Meg Conkey says the old caveman narrative didn't just oversimplify the roles of men and women in deep time. It's also a problem in thinking that there were only men and only women. More recent archaeology has found signs that some ancient cultures recognized more than two genders. Of course, so have some Native American tribes. And there are ritual specialists, people who move in and out of different gender categories depending on what they're doing. Among the Chumash Native American group here in Southern California, they had long documented that they, there's a whole group of people who are in charge of burying the dead. And to bury the dead, you can't just be an ordinary man or an ordinary woman. You have to be a somebody else. So, Celeste, there's a pretty broad consensus among scholars that the invention of agriculture and of more settled, specialized societies created an opportunity for men. They pushed for these more distinct gender roles and seized for themselves the roles that carried most of the power, especially political and economic power. We're going to hear more of that history in later episodes, and of course we'll look at how women have pushed back, with some real but limited success in the last couple of centuries. But before we leave deep time, I had one more question for Meg Conkey and Mel Connor, and that was, why did the patriarchy happen? You mean, what was the motive? Yeah. Why did men of 10,000 years ago want to seize the upper hand at the expense of the women in their lives? Yeah, I mean, what a dick move. That's a dick move you've <laughs> all been making ever since. And here's how Meg Conkey answered the why question. Some people will argue that men need to tell themselves or want to be in charge because they are left out of the whole reproductive process, really, in terms of being the ones that can create life. And uh, even if people are informed that it can't happen without their sperm, nonetheless, it's a huge cultural difference. And in many societies, the creation and perpetuation of life is a really big deal, right? So guys have insecure egos well, and they because of what right. this amazing thing that women can do that they can't do, that they, we can't right. do. And then the, so that makes us want to run for Congress. That's <laughs> right. And then you can think you can control women's bodies by, you know, endorsing anti-abortion laws. Anyway. Um, Margaret and me no, came up with this concept of womb envy as an answer to, uh, to Freud's concept of penis envy. And... I sort of think that is a much better concept. Uh, penis envy seems kind of ridiculous to me. Me too. <laughs> but even though Mel Connor thinks womb envy is real, he says there's a simpler reason men built the gender hierarchy and put themselves in the top spot. The most basic explanation for why male supremacy uh, appeared after the rise of agriculture was that, that it was possible. Men controlled women as well as oppressed them because they could. And so it's about power, really. Right. And scholars say after patriarchy developed with the first societies to settle down and farm, those cultures became the first colonial powers and they spread systems of patriarchy to the places they colonized. 
I have a question though about this womb envy idea. In our society today, I don't really see a lot of reverence for motherhood or fatherhood for that matter. The US is practically alone among rich countries in not guaranteeing paid parental leave or help with early childcare. We don't pay childcare workers a living wage. There are rampant reports of pregnancy discrimination, women not getting jobs or losing them because they got pregnant. And really, even in terms of attitudes, do you really think the typical man in our society is in awe of women's ability to give birth? Or do most guys kind of see it as mundane, no big deal, something you're quite happy to leave to women? No, I, I, I take your point. I, I don't think our society socializes us to truly hold motherhood in high esteem, except on Mother's Day. If that. <laughs> but, but there is evidence that uh, if we're talking about how we got this thing, you know, maybe the original motives for patriarchy, there is evidence that that was different in at least some hunter-gatherer societies. Mel Connor told me about cultures in which the husbands of pregnant women eat plants that make them constipated. So when the woman goes into labor, the, the dad goes out into the bush and struggles and strains to push out a heroic poop. And then he comes back and reports that he gave birth to a stillborn baby. Wow. So uh, that seems like some kind of indication that those guys want in on the drama and the glory of, of childbirth. Maybe the equivalent in our culture is the, you know, is the high-class guy who points at his partner's pregnant belly and says, look what I did. And, you know, I want to pick up on something else. Um, Meg Conkey talked about controlling women's bodies, and that is really a huge part of what male supremacy is about for me. Men want access to women's bodies. They want to control women's sexuality and our production of babies. Power and control isn't that another piece of the puzzle, at least as important as womb envy? Well, here's how Mel Connor put it. He, he says a lot of what has happened in human history over the last 10,000 years is about men's desire to control uteruses. Let me bring in one more expert here, Lisa Wade. She's a sociologist at Occidental College in California. So, for example, controlling women's sexual behavior, it wasn't there wasn't a lot of reason to do that when men weren't really interested in being able to pass down their stuff to their own biological child. If they didn't own a bunch of stuff, there was no real passing down to do. And from what we know, uh, hunter-gatherers, even if they understood the biology of reproduction, they didn't really prioritize biological fatherhood so much as understand that uh, we are a big kin group and everyone is sort of helping each other raise all of these children, which are ours, right? But when people started accumulating stuff, land and other property, and men were building these patriarchal conspiracies, as Mel Connor put it, men decided it was important to know they'd be passing their property down to their biological children. Okay, well, their sons. And men started to think of women as property too. Property they could trade by way of marriage for land or some other financial alliance with another patriarch. Property that could be damaged as an act of war. Property that had no more legal rights than a chair or a table. All right, so here is my next question. From what you've told us so far, it kind of sounds arbitrary, as if men just decided to build the patriarchy and it could just as easily have gone the other way as if women could just as well have taken the dominant position, but you men beat us to it. 
Yeah, you sound skeptical. Well, I mean, it's possible that women behaved less aggressively because that's what they were socialized to do. But there's also this hormone called testosterone. You may have heard of it. Mm -hmm. It has an impact on behavior. So maybe that has something to do with you men having decided to dominate and oppress us women when you got the chance. Maybe it's a tendency that you're born with. Yeah, are men socialized to be the way we are? Or is it at least in part in our wiring, our genes, brains, hormones? That's what I want to hear about next. The nature-nurture question. And I get it, it's not very easy to tease apart the cultural and biological. But it is a great question, and a huge one, and a complicated one. So next time, in part two, to what extent are gender differences innate or inevitable? Or is it all man-made? Music in this episode by Alex Weston and by Evgeny and Sasha Galperine. Music and production help from Joe Augustine at Narrative Music. Like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Scene on Radio. I'm at Celeste Headley. That's H-E-A-D, like the body part, L-E-E. Scene on Radio comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX. PRX.